In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. She then leaves his house and goes off to become another man's wife. Then suppose the second man dislikes her, writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or maybe the second man who marries her dies. Her first husband, who sent her away, is not permitted to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that would be abhorrent to the Lord. And you should not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a possession. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. That, my friends, is where we find the only passage in the Torah, the law of Moses, that describes divorce. And it is most certainly the passage that the Pharisees are using to test Jesus. Now, there are several words that we use in the church, sometimes in sermons, other times in conversations, sometimes even maybe with a hint of judgment in our voice, that our modern culture might say we need a trigger warning for. Take tithing or stewardship. Anytime we discuss money, what a tithe actually is, what almsgiving is, you can wait for that. He'll be coming up in just a few weeks. We ruffle feathers. If we discuss something like sin, or even remind you ever so gently that you indeed are a sinner and in need of a redeemer, some people say that all we are trying to do is frighten people with images of hellfire, demons, and damnation. And if we, as the church, speak out about another topic, we are sometimes called cruel, archaic, old-fashioned even, and that is on the subject of divorce. Divorce is painful. Divorce is the breaking of a union between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. I come from a divorced family, and I know the pain that children can feel and the stigma of having come from a broken or dysfunctional family, both terms that I think sometimes do more to render psychological damage to those who are in the midst of a divorce but are not actually participants like children and in-laws and other close relations. But before we dive into this teaching of Jesus, and it is radical indeed as much as now, as much as it was 2,000 years ago, we must remember one thing. Sort of keep it in our sight as we examine and read this passage. Jesus' supposed negative view of divorce is tempered by the positive view and nature that he puts into marriage, the union of a man and a woman. So please keep that in mind as we examine this teaching a little closer. We must realize that Jesus gives two answers to this question posed by the Pharisees. 
and that even in first century Palestine, divorce was something of a hot-button issue, and sometimes and something that occurred frequently, perhaps too frequently. The first answer Jesus gives is a public statement, something said out in the open, and it is worded rather exactingly. Appealing to Moses, remember, at this time, Jews believed that Moses wrote all of Genesis. So the Torah, the law, is not just the legal codes, but also the creation accounts. Appealing to Moses, Jesus quotes the law before sin entered the world. Taken from the accounts of creation, Jesus is telling his hearers that what God's original plan God's original design and intention was, and that was for man and woman to become one through the intimacy of marriage. And sometimes that union indeed does produce one flesh, children. Now, part of the reason Jesus has had to answer this way is because this is also a twofold trap. <clears throat> First, if he doesn't quote the law, if he gives some teaching that is his own original thought or an idea by a scholar or scribe, Jesus could be accused of preaching something which is unorthodox, is heretical, and frankly wrong teaching. But secondly, and we mustn't forget this either, John the Baptist was in prison and summarily executed for speaking both publicly and to Herod, that it was not lawful for Herod to marry his brother's wife Herodias. And the sting of that criticism was so deep that Herodias bore a grudge that lasted until she convinced her daughter to ask for John's head to be given to her on a platter. Speaking openly to the Pharisees about divorce could indeed land you in prison and worse if you gave the wrong answer. The second answer Jesus gives is in private, behind locked doors, and spoken only to his disciples. And this is part of where we get the radicalness of Jesus' teaching. But in order to get to the crux of that answer, we must know several things about what marriage was and how women, even as wives, were regarded. Much of what we now call the Middle East, and specifically the regions of Palestine, Judea, Samaria, the family culture was what we would call a patriarchal society. In many instances, marriages were arranged and those arrangements took place without much input, if any, to be honest, from the woman involved. Typically, the father of the bride-to-be and the man to whom she was to be married made the arrangement. If there was any meaningful engagement, it lasted about a year. And they might, they might get to know each other but always with some sort of supervision. Think of a chaperone appointed by your potential father-in-law. But many times, love and affection were not the driving forces or motivators in this relationship. 
It, in fact, was more of a legal transaction that occurred between two families with dowries given, promises made, and the wife becoming part of the groom's household. The marriage ceremony was actually like signing a legal contract, much like when you purchase a house, and then the festivities begin. Now, the grounds for divorce were solely reserved for the husband, because in many ways, his wife was now his property. Like I said just a second ago, think about signing a legal contract for your house. And if you remember the passage I read from Deuteronomy, there was a word that is very, shall we say, fuzzy, objectionable. If the man found anything objectionable, he could divorce her. So, if she has a mole he doesn't like, that could be grounds for divorce. If she did something that could be understood to be sexually uh, or to be a sexual misconduct, you could start with adultery and go from there. Well, that could certainly be deemed objectionable. Rabbi Aquiba, one of Judaism's renowned teachers, has said, quote, even if he found another woman more beautiful than she is, well, then that could be grounds for divorce because that could be understood to be objectionable. The Hillel school of Judaism has gone so far as to say that this seemingly minor infraction is grounds for divorce. Are you ready for it? Okay, here it is. Even if she spoiled a dish. In essence, if she ruined his dinner, he could issue her a certificate of divorce and expel her from his household that very day. So much relies on how and what we view as objectionable. So with that in mind, what is Jesus really saying? Well, first, Jesus is teaching that marriage, the relationship that a man and a woman have that looks back to the time just after creation itself is holy and sacrosanct. It is a covenant-type relationship that should be held in high esteem. Based upon documents that we have from around this time, we believe that in Palestine and among the Jews, that men were using this law of objection rather freely. They may have been living into the law given to Moses, but they were not living into the spirit of the law and into the purpose of the law. What Jesus is saying is that divorce breaks a holy union, breaks with God's will as intended from creation. Now, what we must understand in the 21st century is that every divorce is tragic. People who have fallen in love, who wish to spend the rest of their lives building upon a sacramental union and symbol of this very church, sometimes end their relationships. And sometimes the factors that lead to a breaking of this union are unavoidable because something has happened. There is the affair or the abuse 
or the drugs and alcohol, or the gambling, or maybe even some criminal activity. But each person has a responsibility. There is an equity, an, a, a leveling that Jesus talks about. And in that responsibility, one is to repent and to turn away from sin and not hurt the person any longer. And the other one, if they are a Christian, is called to forgive the person who wronged them. It takes both people, just like the relationship at the beginning took both people to fall in love. But sometimes it's completely unavoidable. One person feels their life is in danger. Another doesn't want the children watching a drunk every night. The affair broke the trust of the two people so deeply that reconciliation seems impossible. The balance Jesus has conveyed to us is that marriage and divorce are serious commitments and neither should be entered into unadvisedly or lightly. In a society then, then as it, and also it seems to be now, where divorce was literally a pinstroke away for something we would consider trivial, Jesus was and is calling us to live into the spirit of the commandment. What is something that is truly objectionable? A spoiled dinner or the physical assault when the beams are burnt? But like so much of Jesus' teachings, this isn't only about divorced and married couples. How often do we use our faith, our code of conduct, perhaps even our own positions to escape our responsibility? We talk ourselves into excuses and other utter little lies like, well, I'm going to go and do this, this being some sinful thing, because I know God will forgive me. Or, do they really think if God cares if I steal a few dollars from that guy? I mean, after all, he's pretty rich and he's loaded. Taking divorce or different sins and recasting them into some sort of excusable action is part of the overarching message Jesus is hinting at. And that is what makes it so radical. Don't hide behind the law and do what is lawful even though it is not morally right. Use the law as the rule for living a life pleasing to God. So, what then is the positive character of marriage that Jesus is pointing to? It has to do with the restoration of creation. Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, were living a life in the way God intended, and that life was made full and rich by their companionship with each other. What Jesus is wanting us to realize is that in the restored creation, in a marriage between two people who love each other, 
Unity and mutuality become the icon of what God's original plan for creation was to be. That is part of the reason why marriages are so important in the life of the church. They become an image for us of what our relationship with each other and our relationship with God should look like and can look like. The prohibition on divorce must never be understood as something to be so binding as to put your life or the life of your children or even your own mental health in jeopardy. That is not the case. Rather, we should be seeing marriage between men and women as a gift to both themselves and to us who know and see them. In trying to sum this up, I realize that perhaps our best guide is the bidding prayer in our prayer book at the beginning of a marriage ceremony. Here is part of what it says. <clears throat> we have come together in the presence of God to witness, the, 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 to witness and bless the joining together of this man and this woman into holy matrimony. The bond and covenant of marriage was established by God in creation. And our Lord Jesus Christ adorned this manner of life by his presence and first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It signifies to us the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. And Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. In this, and in many aspects of our lives, do not be hard-hearted. Don't write off other people with a simple dismissal or attempt to claim a superiority because of your faith. Rather, find ways to build relationship, to be giving, forgiving, and loving to all. This is especially true of those who are married, but the same holds true for those of us who are not. Don't destroy what God has intended from the dawn of creation. And part of that intention is the loving relationship between married people, but also the loving relationship between you and your friends. And ultimately, the loving relationship that each of us have with God, our Creator. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.